This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 20,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome. I'm Dion barnes Purby, a social policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. I'm here to recap some key takeaways from the career prospects for people with criminal records symposium that was held at the RAND office in Washington, D.C. I hosted this symposium along with Priscilla Hunt. You'll hear more from Priscilla in other episodes. Today, I'm happy to be talking with some practitioners who participated in the practice strategies panel at the symposium. We discussed how to overcome barriers and improve employment outcomes for people with a criminal record through re-entry, community supervision, and employer-driven programs. Specifically, we talked about strategies to equip job seekers with a criminal record with the skills, experience, and support needed to position them to compete for high-wage jobs and careers. In addition, we reviewed employer-focused opportunities or approaches to change the culture, remove stigma, and increase employers' willingness to provide second-chance opportunities. My first guest is Josh Miller, an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy at Georgetown University. He's also the director of education for the Prisons and Justice Initiative and the managing director of the Pivot Program. Thanks so much for joining me today, Josh. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the details, I'd like to give you a chance to tell our audience a little more about the Prisons and Justice Initiative, as well as the Pivot Program, which is part of this larger effort. Sure. Thanks again. Um, So the Prisons and Justice Initiative was founded in uh, 2016 by Professor Mark Howard, who's a professor of government and law at Georgetown. Um, He's been there for a couple of decades now, and he's been... um, working on issues related to um, exonerations and mass incarceration for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. And at Georgetown, as a part of a larger effort around racial justice, has become really interested um, in these themes and problems. And some of the work we do is national and academic and scholarly. And some of the Mm -hmm. work we do increasingly is um, of service to our community. Uh, We have two main initiatives right now, two main programs. We have a college and prison program at the DC jail, which is now expanding to the state of Maryland. Um, And we have a reentry program that trains returning citizens, uh, people who have formerly been incarcerated to uh, start their own businesses or become business leaders in the region. Um, We're really proud of both of these programs, but it's important to sort of note for context that D.C. is the number one incarcerator in the country. Um, On a per capita basis, D.C. incarcerates more of its citizens than any other state. Um, We incarcerate more people than Louisiana, than Oklahoma um, Mm -hmm. on a per capita basis. And that means this is Mm -hmm. a, a really massive challenge here in the district. Um, And so we don't have to go far to try to make a difference on that. 6,000 returning citizens are coming home every year and we just, we try to help some of them. So the Pivot program is a, is a 10 month program that it's a mix of entrepreneurship and academic training in business fundamentals and the liberal arts with um, subsidized paid employment uh, internships basically uh, in DC businesses. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had two cohorts to date. 
um, at the time of recording, we're a couple of weeks before the end of the second cohort. Um, we've served basically 36 um, DC residents, not a lot uh, compared to that 6,000 number. Um, yeah. But um, these are really special people. Um, we're on track to graduate 31 of them. We had 15 graduates in the first program. We'll have 16 this time. Um, and I have to say, they've been immensely successful, really impressive folks. Great. Thanks so much, Josh. It was really great to hear um, the detailed explanation about the Pivot program, as well as DC, um, to provide some context for our audience to understand kind of where the Pivot program sits. Um, one of the things that came up during the symposium, we talked a lot about structural regulatory and social barriers that can limit job seekers' uh, ability to secure employment. You highlighted the importance of addressing two commonly cited barriers, which are housing instability and lack of education. Can you tell us a little bit more about how practitioners and policymakers and administrators can work to overcome these broad barriers and challenges? Thank you. Uh, again, this is a great question because, in fact, the two main drivers of success in reentry are uh, housing and employment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so these end up also being the things that are most difficult for people to secure when they're released. Um, for most people who are coming home, their main access to housing is going to be through family members. And so anything we can do to preserve that relationship, uh, to mediate conflicts, um, is going to help them secure that initial housing um, and the, the other kinds of support they're going to need from their family as they're getting on their feet again. Um, for employment, it's a lot harder. There's a tremendous stigma against returning citizens um, because sometimes because of the nature of their crimes and sometimes just because of a suspicion about what kind of person could have a criminal record. Well, and in fact, 70 million of our fellow Americans have criminal records. So often these are our neighbors and our friends and we just don't think about them that way. What we've seen is that returning citizens can be tremendously effective workers. They can be productive. They can offer a lot to an employer um, or as owners of their own business, but they're prevented from working because of the stigma that we have uh, against them. And even when businesses make commitments, they make signed pledges like the, the fair chance pledge, these things that CEOs and you know um, general counsel sign off on and agree to, and you know they get lots of press. They don't seem to trickle down to the practices of human resource departments, so that they don't turn into a lot of hires. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make an end run around that set of expectations. We try to use the Georgetown alumni network and our partners here in the region and our reputation to basically open doors that are otherwise closed. We mm -hmm. provide subsidized employment, which means an internship that would normally only be available to someone of means who could afford to work for free, which is subsidized so that that person is paid to participate and the employer takes that person on, that, that employee on at no cost. Um, we do that through a program that's funded by the DC government called Project Empowerment, and it pays a training wage. It's, it's quite low, $10 an hour at least for the district where the minimum wage is $15 an hour. Okay. We, we use the Georgetown education 
as a selection mechanism. We try to show, look, this person's been successful in our courses. Um, you know, they've they've met our rigorous requirements for admission. Um, they've impressed us. Let them impress you, and that becomes a signal that makes employers hungry for more of the talented folks that we've been sending them. So in our first year, you know, everybody had an internship. There were um, a few interns that walked away disappointed. Um, but this year in the second cohort, after actually only, you know, one experiment, we had 36 employers hungrily fighting for 18 of our pivot fellows. And these are organizations that range from nonprofits that work in this space, so they knew about us that way, like the Vera Institute of Justice, but also including New Columbia Solar, an organization here in the district that provides solar power um, and is looking for salespeople. Founding Farmers, uh, which is a, a, a restaurant group here in the district that's looking for restaurant managers. Um, and you know, all these all these employers were just very excited to work with our fellows. They are coming back next year to try to get one next year. They had to make competitive offers, you know, <laughs> uh, make kind of, you know, sort of talk a little bit about how great it was going to be to work with them. And, um, you know, I hope that we don't have twice as many employers next year because then we, uh, we'd really have a lot of disappointed folks. But um, you can just see that we're, we've got a lot of momentum behind us and we've um, – that's all on the strength of the pivot fellows themselves, because once you realize how talented these folks are, um, you just, you just come back for more. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. And we'll get to a little bit later a discussion about how you've been able to overcome the stigma and the, um, you know, the cultural uh, barrier um, among employers to help them to see the value of these uh, folks with who have a record, but who are quite capable of working anyway. Um, so before we get to that, though, one of the other points that you made during the symposium was about how a person who is on probation or parole, essentially community supervision, can that how that can sometimes be a barrier to employment. Um, this is because employers think that conditions of probation and parole will be an ongoing irritation, and they're afraid that employees will be reincarcerated, largely due to violations. Um, you stress, stress the importance of programs like the Pivot Program, developing good relationships with community supervision agencies to help them to overcome these barriers. So I'd like to give you a chance to tell us, provide us with some examples of how you've been able to overcome this challenge and how it's presented itself. Yeah, so this has been an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I've worked inside prisons and jails for about a decade, um, and usually just on the inside. But since we've started doing reentry programming, I've started to spend a lot more time dealing with parole officers and here in the district, we call them community supervision officers. But this mm -hmm. process of supervision is, wow, it's a massive barrier to reentry um, because even though we have a particularly good relationship with the agency here in the district that does this work, um, I've had the opportunity to see firsthand what it's like to be the employer of a returning citizen, because I'm the one that gets the call. I'm the one that um, sort of negotiates the conditions. Um, and it's it's coming coming from the perspective of a philosophy professor. I just have mm -hmm. to say it's it's blown my mind. So let me just let me just give you some examples. 
Um, first of all, if you employ a returning citizen, it may be the case, it wouldn't necessarily be the case, but it may be a, the case that you'll have an experience like I have had where someone calls me up and mistrustfully or skeptically says, so wait, you're saying that so-and-so works at Georgetown? Prove it, right? right. So it's not just, hey, could you please fax over the employment paperwork or send me the, letter, the, the offer letter? It's like, I don't believe you are who you say you are. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to, I'm going to catch you out. So there's, there's already, it's like you, you are under investigation. It doesn't feel great. Um, and I, I say that because it's my job to deal with that. I'm happy to deal with that. But many employers didn't sign on for that particular set of, um, sort of discomforts. And it's something that anyone who hires a returning citizen might have to face. So mm -hmm. you start there. Uh, you start with this experience of being interrogated by a CSO as if you are on trial. And, mm -hmm. and then you add to that things like random urinalysis, where our pivot fellows are called away at any time and often during the day to drive or take an Uber or bike across the city to provide evidence that they haven't been using drugs. Now, this mm -hmm. is not something we require. This is something required by their, their supervision, the conditions of their supervision. And, um, you know, because... This is a program for returning citizens. We're, we're willing to accommodate it. But I wouldn't say we're happy to accommodate it because it can be in the middle of class. It can mm -hmm. be in the middle of a job interview. It can be in the middle of all sorts of things that seem pretty important for a returning citizen's successful reentry. And yet this thing takes precedence because it has to be random. It has to be unexpected or else someone could try to game the system. Um, I have to say, if I were a regular employer and I was looking for Joe to um, – you know, like stand uh, behind a counter and sell me something or get some work done. Um, I wouldn't expect them to be leaving for 45 minutes in the middle of the day. And yet right. that often happens. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is that they have these things called home checks, which is that they want to check to see that where you live is where you say you live. And so they basically will make our pivot fellows stay home from work on days in order to investigate their living situation, um, often in addition to um, sort of making sure that they're there and seeing that their underwear is in the, um, you know, the uh, – the Bureau, they also want to talk to your roommates or your family. And that too, although I don't experience it directly, um, seems to be something that causes a lot of friction in an already difficult um, situation. So um, you've got this relationship that's potentially fraught and frayed by whatever the circumstances of the initial offense were and the time away. And you add to that this, this supervisory officer coming in and interrogating your family or your friends or whoever was kind enough to offer you like uh, a place to sleep for the night. So um, these things together seem like they present massive barriers to the things we know help with reentry. And I, I think we should be reevaluating them quite seriously. But mm -hmm. because Georgetown is Georgetown and DC is willing to work with us, we actually have a really great relationship with the supervision organization here in the district, CSOSA. And that means that everything that I'm describing, these are the sort of like small irritations that we have given our status. And I know that they're, you know, three times as bad or five times as bad for other people, especially in other states where there's more skepticism of returning citizens. Um, so I just want to sort of share that as proud as I am as a, of our partnership and as glad as I am to work with people like Tony Lewis uh, Jr., who I, I hope you'll have on the podcast soon. At the same time, uh, it's really bad out there, and this is something we should be seriously reconsidering. 
Yeah, it's it's great to hear that you've been able to establish a partnership um, with the supervising agency there to help to address some of these um, challenges or at least minimize them. One of the other challenges that we discussed during the symposium you mentioned earlier is this issue of culture, this culture among employers that they perceive job seekers uh, with a criminal record or returning citizens as too high risk or they don't have the skills necessary to do the job. So you discussed some of the strategies that the Pivot Program has found to be effective at addressing this challenge, which include the subsidies and the internships. So if I'm an employer, um, why should I be willing to take this risk? And if, if you were to make a case for me as an employer taking that risk, what, what would you say? Right. So there are two ways to look at this. One is what Georgetown is able to add, how we're able to make that case, which is largely about leveraging our existing uh, business networks and providing this this uh, opportunity to try before you buy, to have um, a mm-hmm. no commitment sort of period of pro- probation um, with someone and the the vetting and, and vouching process that we're involved in. But I think actually in answer to your question, the case for hiring returning citizens is much simpler, which is that because in the United States we incarcerate so many of our fellow citizens, mm-hmm. people in the United States have criminal records who wouldn't be incarcerated in any other country in the world, right? So, you know, depending on the, the way you measure it, we have like seven to ten times as many people in prison and jail at any one time than we would if we were a small European nation of some sort. So ordinary and extraordinary folks, um, especially from certain backgrounds and races, uh, tend to get incarcerated in the United States and when they wouldn't be anywhere else. And Mm -hmm. they have this fantastic talent that's literally been locked away, uh, untapped, and you as an employer are missing out on it. You're also, so you're missing out on, first of all, just great talent. Second of all, you're missing out on the diversity that's provided by those life experiences. And I think perhaps most importantly, there is something distinctive about someone who is incarcerated in the United States. Um, And that's that on average, they tend to maybe be a little bit more entrepreneurial than somebody who hasn't been incarcerated, right? They Mm -hmm. maybe are more willing to take risks now with a limit on what kinds of risks they're willing to take. And so one of the things you're really missing out on is you're missing out on a great salesperson, a great um, sort of innovator or entrepreneur who's, who's ready and, and indeed excited to sort of change the product that they sell or the uh, industry that they want to disrupt. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I, I think that's the case is basically this is talent, but it's not just talent like they can do the job. It's talent in the sense that they can do it differently and better than you're used to expecting. Um, when you get the the people who have sort of jumped through all the hoops and, and done it perfectly up till now. That's a perfect case to be made for um, hiring returning citizens. Um, some members of our audience might be thinking, so who have you been able to make this case to? Who are some e- employers that you've worked with who've been willing to hire graduates of the Pivot program? And what's been the feedback on their the performance of the workers? Sure. So this is in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., and D.C. has um, a really powerful real estate industry, obviously government and the public sector play a pretty large role here. Um, And there are a lot of nonprofits and especially a lot of nonprofits that work in the criminal justice and uh, criminal justice reform space. So 
those are exactly the things that are overrepresented in our uh, our hiring. Uh, we have somebody this year who's going to link strategic partners, which is a PR firm, Justice Policy Institute, which is a nonprofit, Clark Construction, mm-hmm. uh, Free Minds Book Club, which is a, a reentry organization, the Vera Institute of Justice, Clean Decisions, uh, the Council for Court Excellence, the Democracy Initiative. Chick-fil-A, Fifth Tribe. Um, Fifth Tribe's a, a digital marketing firm. So, you know, it's a diverse group of industries, but I will acknowledge that nonprofits in the criminal justice sector are overrepresented because um, many of them are really hungry for people who have direct experience with this and mm-hmm. uh, with the system and can talk about it uh really, really intelligently and well, and that ends up being our graduates. So uh, that's our comparative advantage, and we're happy to take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's that's really great. Those are a wide range of um, organizations that have been willing to kind of take this charge on. So thanks so much for sharing that. I've got one final question for you, Josh. Um, any practical recommendations that you have or take-home messages for job seekers, employers, and practitioners who are, you know, working hard to try to improve employment outcomes for returning citizens? So my advice to employers is to look for unusual signals of talent to diversify your workforce. There are so many talented and capable workers who you're never seeing because of the criminal background check screen. You've got to affirmatively signal that you're interested in this population, though, because they already expect to be turned down. Um, So Mm -hmm. they're going to know better to apply unless you say, this is what we do. This is not something we care about. So that's that's a piece of advice for employers. Uh, you're mm-hmm. missing out. Um, my advice to policymakers is basically to take advantage of this model uh, to provide opportunities for subsidized work, uh, to provide those opportunities for longer, uh, and to make it easier in the way that only lawmakers can to try on unusual workers for size and see if they could find a home in a particular workplace because the more work experience they have, um, the more hireable, the more employable they'll be. Um, And often that's what's interfering. Uh, But, you know, I I also want to return to the other theme, which is that we really need to reconsider parole and probation. We need to ask Mm -hmm. ourselves in a data-driven way, which is the kind of thing that Rand is quite good at, um, Mm -hmm. whether parole and probation are helping reentry or harming it, whether they're preventing recidivism or causing it. And by the way, I think we already know the answer to that, um, but I'll leave it for the experts. I I, I do think that, you know, most... Uh, supervision agencies pay at least lip service to the idea that their goal is successful reentry, but we need to do more than um, cheap talk. We need to signal to the people who work in these agencies that what we, the public, value um, mm-hmm. is that they coach people to success rather than punish failure. Um, because I do think that there's there are agencies that have a culture of sort of violating for anything um, Mm. and only someone who has a perfect record can sort of survive their parole and probation. I've, I know of people who have been incarcerated and have been offered really lengthy terms of parole under really arduous um, conditions and have said, you know, that's a recipe for failure. I'm not going to allow myself to be set up for failure in this way. I'll stay inside where I know I'm safe because otherwise I'm facing potentially decades more time. Yeah. 
great suggestions for specifically handling that challenge of, you know, probation and parole being a, a barrier to employment. That's that's wonderful that you covered that. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk this through and kind of recap what we learned during the symposium. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Dion. I really enjoyed it. My next guest is Tony Earl Jr., Executive Director and Founder of MADE Transitional Services. MADE stands for Making a Difference Every Day. Tony is also an Offender Workforce Development Specialist certified by the New York State Department of Criminal Justice. Thanks so much for joining me today, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. Truly an honor and privilege. Before we dig into the details, I'd like to give you a chance to tell our audience a little bit about your organization. Yes. Uh, having witnessed the challenges of reentry and finding employment with the criminal record firsthand, alongside our co-founder and deputy executive director, Tariq Green, MADE Transitional Services was founded in 2014. MADE is a reentry service provider, providing services to those in the New York tri-state area. MADE serves approximately 500 clients annually through direct services such as job placement, reentry, jail-based programs, and other and our transitional house. Uh, we have an additional reach of those with criminal justice involvement uh, with our fair chance hiring, job fairs, and other career-focused programs. Great, thanks, Tony. I look forward to hearing a little bit more about um, exactly the the features that you just described um, as we move forward with this conversation. Um, but it sounds like MADE is definitely doing some great work in the community to help meet the needs of individuals with a criminal record. Um, during the symposium, we talked extensively about the range of barriers returning citizens experience when trying to enter the workforce. One of the key barriers you highlighted was culture. You talked about the need to dispel myths and remove stigma associated with hiring people with a criminal record. So following up on that, what are some of the strategies that might help change the narrative and the culture? I think having those who are directly impacted at the forefront uh, and or at least involved in these conversations is a huge tool uh, that we utilize at MADE uh, with myself, uh, uh, and our deputy executive director, uh, both being formerly incarcerated, uh, we're able to help change the face of what our returning citizens are able to accomplish and when given opportunities. Um, I'll take a little, uh, this opportunity to share um, my personal testament, a brief version. Uh, after serving 31 months in the New York State, uh, uh, state cr criminal justice system, um, after returning as a first-time nonviolent drug offender uh, with college education and a, you know, numerous uh, work history, just not recent, um, it took me over 12 months to, to find employment. And that was after over a dozen interviews, over three dozen applications completed. Uh, and this first opportunity was actually a, a career opportunity. It wasn't a career of my choice, but indeed it was a career opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I was so determined to prove to myself and also the employer uh, for giving me this opportunity um, that they didn't make a mistake. And uh, that led to me being the first in the office, uh, last to leave, uh, and quickly with inside the the first three months, I rose to the top of the sales team, uh, selling copiers throughout the New York City uh, area. And um, shortly after that three-month period, the two owners brought me in and asked me, would I 
do I have any other individuals that I that have been through similar circumstances as me that could benefit from this opportunity? Uh, I thought, and then I, I said, yes, I do. Uh, coincidentally, it was actually two of my co-defendants who have made similar personal changes, uh, and they too were brought on board in Excel. So here you have an employer that stumbled upon an untapped talent pool uh, just by chance, uh, and they were able to benefit. Um, what's also been effective is is shifting the approach to assessing talent and viewing lived experiences as potential assets to the workforce. Uh, this talent pool is full of resourceful and creative problem-solving abilities when given opportunity to put these skills to work. Uh, we expand how employers assess behavioral competencies when it comes to the formerly incarcerated. Uh, and to accomplish this, one of our key programs is our leveraging the workforce of the future, fair chance hiring training, uh, which focuses on training hiring managers and HR professionals. Uh, for example, the vast majority of workforce incidents of violence are perpetuated by people without pre-existing criminal records, just to kind of give you an example of uh, what how inaccurate some of our pre preconceived notions can be. Tony, did you want to share anything else about exactly what types of um, activities you engage in as part of the leveraging the workforce for future fair chance hiring training? Absolutely. We, we, we touch on um, some empathy. We touch, touch on um, debunking myths. Uh, and, and stereotypes and biases. Uh, unfortunately, if, if, if you are fortunate enough to not have either directly or indirectly been impacted by anyone in the criminal justice system, then you are limited to what you see on TV and a lot that, that couldn't be any further from the truth or the reality of what you're dealing with when giving or considering uh, second chance uh, and fair chance hiring uh, and the type of individual that you potentially could be bringing on board. Um, so we walk professionals through several uh, different uh, variations of training um, to kind of give them a different uh, perspective, as well as uh, educating them on uh, resources and uh, um, unconventional uh, perspectives when it comes to looking at this population. Great. Thank you. That um, sounds like a really great training to help to um, address the cultural issues and misnomers that employers might have about job seekers. Um, and I'd also like to follow up on one of your other points that you made during the symposium, which focused on how job seekers themselves can signal to employers that they're work ready and the role that re-entry programs like MADE can play in addressing employers' concerns. So can you describe what individuals and organizations like MADE can do to demonstrate job seekers' work readiness? Yes. Um, so ultimately, it comes down to, to three things, uh, assuming risk, gaining business value, and how fair chance hiring improves uh, a business's bottom line. Helping employers understand these competencies is hugely beneficial in overcoming the barriers. Uh, at MADE, we work with employers to ensure that our referrals are vetted, prepared through programs like Ready, Set, Work, which is a job readiness training. Uh, and we also commit to a 30, 60, and 90-day check-in with employers on how our clients are progressing. Uh, MAGE proof of positive change concept is all about criminal justice-involved individuals, 
exhibiting dedication and commitment to reform. And that can look like uh, completion of job readiness training, like I just mentioned. Uh, that can look like completion of any other programs that were uh, required of them uh, upon their release as part of their their stipulation, their supervision stipulation, such as anger management, such as uh, any other certification trainings that they've taken. These are all uh, demonstrations of commitment to change and to their own personal development uh, that that separates them from others that that haven't taken that commitment and 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 that would indeed put them in a a more serious light in terms of uh, being a a stronger candidate for that position when considering two with with criminal record where one has and one hasn't uh, demonstrated those proof of positive change. Uh, you'll be hard pressed to find a reentry agency that doesn't in, uh, incorporate similar approaches to uh, um, working with employers, uh, because these relationships uh, in regards to employers willing to hire within those who have criminal records are far and few. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's, it's extremely important to not only manage, but also maintain those relationships, again, by properly vetting uh, the referrals that we that we do make. Wow, those sound like really good strategies for vetting and, and, and vouching um, and, and also for job seekers to demonstrate that there has been change. Um, and, and I'm sure that opens up opportunities to at least get their foot in the door that maybe wouldn't have existed before. Um, so another point that you made that I'd like us to spend some time now unpacking focused on the debate between placing folks in uh, with a criminal record in what is commonly referred to as offender-friendly jobs, like construction or truck driving, um, versus placing them in jobs that align with their career interests. Um, research tends to support the former approach, but what are your thoughts about this particular topic? So uh, after having been in this field uh, for uh, approaching seven years now, um, I, prior to me entering this field, reentry was job placement based, uh, where over the past 10 to 15 years, they've shifted to retention based. And uh, anybody in the business of hiring, um, that's one of their, their, their chief priorities, retention. Um, mm -hmm. If you just use myself for an example, even though I did stay in that sector, um, the, the copier sales industry for over five years, um, I eventually left that industry because it, it wasn't my passion. It didn't really align or complement my, my interests and my values, although I happen to be good at it, mm -hmm. um, where, where if, we're, if we're looking at um, aligning individuals with their interests and their values and we're looking at um, you know them growing and staying and growing within the company when we make these hires, if that's which is, you know, a, a chief priority, um, then then this it's, it's extremely important that we don't pigeonhole um, our criminal justice involved individuals down again, what you said are our offender friendly occupations. Um, and one of the it's, it's, it's a few ways to address this. Uh, one challenge is regulatory, um, where it is currently across the nation regulations um, that prohibit individuals with criminal records from acquiring certain certifications. For example, uh, you need a it's a special process uh, on a consideration basis only to become a, a you know, in, enter into the medical field to become a nurse, to get a nursing license. Um, the same would apply for a CPA and some other states, even cosmetology. So it's 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 
you know, there are a need for uh, advocacy uh, to continue to lift the restraints, limiting those uh, with criminal records, especially if it's not related to their nature of their offense and or the period of time since that offense. Uh, some of these offenses date back 20, 30 years and, and there's been no new or recent criminal activity and they're still being held accountable to these same limitations. Uh, another challenge is structural. Um, just the uh, feasibility for affordable or no-cost job trainings um, that are available for, you know, in growth areas like technology, uh, and then also removing the obstacles to entrepreneurship. And uh, again, made what we focus on doing, uh, we don't specifically work in the advocacy space, uh, but this is an area where we do do uh, the majority of our advocating in terms of opening up uh, the opportunities for uh, those with criminal backgrounds to to be able to enter into, again, the non-traditional uh, offender-friendly occupations and fields. Yeah. Can you give some examples of some of these non-traditional fields? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one I would give is, is, is I'll be a little bit um, general because um, it, it's, it's politics. But we recently, um, going on a, a year now, we were able to place uh, an individual in, in, in the government sector um and and you know working in the you know working with the governor um and that and that really was one of our 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 prize uh testimonials even though we're limited in you know how for obvious reasons we're able to um um you know uh, market it but um the individual they, there were some special considerations on a on a very case by case almost first time basis that allowed him to even be placed in that role um, but needless to say, he was, and uh, he's he's overachieved in that role, and um, and actually is in the process of of promotion um, to a, to another to another level in another department within the within the government sector. So, um, you know, again with the governor's office. So, um, it, it's really just the access and opportunity, um, and lifting those stigmas and and and, and biases uh, and preconceived notions that would you know initially exclude almost anybody if that's what we're going to be limited to. Yeah. With the record. yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for, um, for that. Those uh, very insightful comments and, and the examples that you provided to me. Um, I have one final question. Um, do you have any additional practical recommendations or take home messages for job seekers or employers or practitioners who are working hard like yourself and others at MADE to improve the employment outcomes for folks who have a criminal record? Um, I'll just go general. Um, so often I'm viewed or, or, or my, my colleagues are viewed as exceptions to those with criminal records where we, we're not. We were given access and opportunity and we, we flourish within that, within that, that access and, and you know, that opportunity. Uh, so I would encourage employers to start first changing collective mindsets around fair chance hiring. Uh, this could be done through uh, empathy training, empathy, empathy exercises, uh, cultural workshops. Uh, fair chance hiring education, and then formula formalizing initiatives around recruiting and hiring people with criminal records. Uh, just like any other organizational changes, organization, organizational development uh, and processes and policies and procedures need to be put in place uh, for fair chance hiring to be successful. Um, and, you know, hopefully there'll be other resources such as our fair chance hiring training that become uh, more available. We're in the process of making our training a lot more widely available. It's accredited by the human certification 
Resource Institute uh, for continuing education hours for those in, in um, hiring professionals that take them. Uh, and uh, just continuing to advocate for this population. And uh, and uh, when we look at one in three adults of working age having some sort of criminal record uh, as professionals, are we really prepared to limit ourselves to, you know, 60, 66% of, of those of the best potential talent? Yeah, that's a, um, definitely an untapped labor pool that um, folks could take advantage of. So I thank you for closing on that note. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. And I wish you and and, and others at MAID and other organizations that are um, really striving to improve circumstances of this population, I wish you the best. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. My next guest is Tony Lewis, who is an expert in the field of reentry as well as a community activist. He's a vocational development coordinator at the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, or CISOSA, the federal agency that oversees community supervision in the nation's capital. He's also the author of the book Slug, A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Tony has been featured on several media outlets, including CNN, The Breakfast Club, and The Washington Post. It's a pleasure having you here with me today, Tony. I'm happy to be here, Dion. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, Before we get into the discussion, Tony, can you start by telling our audience a little bit about CISOSA? Like, what's your role there? Who served? What services are provided? In addition, can you talk to us a bit about your role as a community activist? Sure. Um, You know, as you mentioned, my role at CISOSA is the vocational development coordinator. Um, In short, I cultivate, maintain relationships with the business community and the training community to create these seamless processes where the men and women that we supervise can engage in positive activity. Um, Obviously, the goal is for people to become stable and be able to thrive and to reduce recidivism and increase public safety. Through those efforts, we see employment and training as pillars in our approach to doing that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Any given day, we supervise maybe 10,000 people uh, Mm -hmm. in the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. Um, The agency actually was created out of the uh, National Capital Revitalization Act, which um, gave uh, federal authorities control of D.C.'s corrections. So Mm -hmm. um, we're the only place where if you break either a local law or federal law, you do your time in the federal prison system, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So with that, the agency that supervised individuals had to be federal also. So uh, that's CISOSA. CISOSA has taken the approach around community supervision to provide a lot of supports and interventions um, outside of just, you know, general community supervision. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we look to provide um, substance abuse tr- uh, treatment, uh, education, uh, obviously employment and, and training and linkages to, to supports that provide some similar programming. Um, mm-hmm. We also have units that have more specialized supervision. So whether it's sex offender or domestic violence, um, young adults, things of that nature where uh, we don't have so somewhat of a cookie cutter approach to all of the people that we supervise. We really try to do um, an individualized approach to help, again, our mission of increasing uh, public safety and reducing recidivism. Uh, as an activist, uh, for the last 20 years, uh, have, you know, most of my adult life, uh, I have been uh, helping to serve the, the, I guess what you would call the most fragile uh, demographic in D.C., uh, particularly men and women and children uh, impacted by mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself, I'm a child of an incarcerated parent. 
My father's been in prison for 31 years. Uh, and so I've done a lot to amplify the voices of children with incarcerated parents, uh, from working with school systems to create programming. Um, I'm an author. My book is Slug, A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration, which I, I look to really educate people on sort of all of the collateral damage that happens as a result of mass incarceration in communities like mine. And uh, I've been a champion and a, and a fighter for the marginalized throughout. And uh, that has, I've been blessed enough to have uh, opportunities to engage and impact locally and nationally around those, those subjects. Great. Thank you. It's really good to hear about the great work that you're doing both at CISOSA and in your community. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. um, during the symposium, we talked a lot about the barriers returning citizens face when they're trying to get a job. And one of the key barriers that you highlighted was the lack of social capital. You talked about how people with a criminal record don't have the same opportunities or exposure or connections to positive role models or people who own businesses or those who have been successful in their lives. So I'd like to follow up on that by asking, what are some of the strategies that might help returning citizens to improve their social networks and build social capital? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think mentorship is, is, is super important um, and programs that can um, actually create uh, uh, the environment where individuals that have been formerly incarcerated can can find a way to, to be attached to individuals that are doing some of the things that they aspire to do. And I think some of that connectivity needs to happen pre-release. Mm. Um, I think it needs to be uh, some pointed efforts to uh, reach out to people while they are incarcerated so those that rapport and those relationships can be uh, created and, and for when people are released, um, they already have someone or multiple people that they can lean on for guidance and, and support. Uh, I think that's essential. I don't think that happens enough. I think uh, the faith-based community, I uh, know at CISO, so we also have a faith-based based initiative that, 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 that aims to create mentors for the men and women that we supervise. But I think the earlier that that can start, the better. And then in, in employment, one of the things that people I think don't speak enough about employment is the opportunity for people to get around pro-social peers, people mm. that can open up their minds and, and, and eyes to things that they may have not experienced. And I, and I use myself as an example, though I've never been incarcerated. I come from a community where that's so normalized and I didn't really know professionals growing up. So my trek to where I am has been much different than my colleagues. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we take things for granted that this is just the experience of everybody. Of course, everybody knows somebody that works or everybody knows somebody went to college or somebody that has a job or profession. That's not necessarily the case. It wasn't, it wasn't true for me. I just, you know, blessed enough to sort of navigate through. So I know that mentorship is, is essential and I, and I hope people look, more to do that. And I hope that even businesses themselves looks to, look to actively uh, recruit and mentor and, and create programming that can help uh, bring men and women that have been formerly incarcerated into the fold. Right, right. Those are really great ideas for how to help this um, group of folks make the right connections because it's, it's not always baked in to our lives. Um, I, like you, didn't have that kind of connection that wasn't, you know, in my environment either. So to build that in intentionally, I could see how that could be really beneficial to this group. Mm -hmm. Um, During the symposium and even today, you all also talked about how important it is to provide wraparound services, multiple services to help meet the various needs of returning citizens and that there shouldn't be this sort of one size fits all approach because individuals have different needs and they have different backgrounds. 
So can you describe the types of services that you think are necessary and how they should be delivered? Sure. I really think it should be sort of a quadrant, a menu of services and, you know, based on a person's needs, uh, you can have a list of things that they can pull from to help. Those interventions can be around family reunification or services and supports. could be around family reunification. It could be around employment, housing, mm-hmm. transportation. Um, you know, if anybody got any specialized needs, whether it was behavioral or mental health, um, you know, domestic violence intervention. A lot of the things I think uh, substance abuse um, anger management, conflict resolution, uh, education, skill set, uh, skill gap or skill set acquisition. Because if we don't take that approach and we put everybody in one basket, then, you know, you may be absolutely meeting every, with this one individual. You you might be meeting them and in, in, in covering all the bases for that person. But for the next person, you're missing all the bases, right? So I think it's important that we we align ourselves and if, if agencies or programs can't do everything themselves which most can't then what right. you have to do is create these strategic partnerships and i think for for csosa that's really been um i think our foundation and what's allowed us to be have this whatever success we've had because we understand that we can't check every box but it is our responsibility to align ourselves with people and and, and, and interventions that we can't provide and create and that's part of my role as a vocation development coordinator in a lot of ways um, is to create those relationships, those partnerships that will will allow us to help our people where they need help. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that needs to be the approach. And, and, you know, another thing I really want to say at the same time, many people that we supervise, they don't, all they need is a little push, a little assistance to get past some of the, uh, you know, strategic or or some of the the, like institutional barriers around criminal history or what have you. These Mm -hmm. people are ready to fly. They don't need, they don't need some of the, a lot of stuff. They don't really need it. You know what I mean? I just think that, and I think it's, uh, it's sometimes faulty in that way that we assume that because somebody has a, had a brush with the law that they completely broken and they need, you know, they, they, they unstable because that's not always the case also. But that, uh, again, that just speaks back to my, my point about why we have to meet people where they are and deal with everybody on an individual basis. Yeah, yeah. I, the, all of those different services that you talk about and the approach to um, meeting folks where they are at by leveraging the relationships that you build to just get them, you know, maybe over the hump. Somebody may need a little help. Somebody may need a lot of help. So it's mm-hmm. great that you sort of identified the different types of services that are needed, but also the way to go about customizing and individualizing the kind of service plan that's needed for this population. Um, and for individuals, I shouldn't even say the population as a whole, because it's, you know, they're all individuals and the way you serve them may be different for each person. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about employers. What role do you think employers play in helping job seekers get a foot in the door? And how do you work with employers? You talked about partnerships before. How do you work with employers to help them to see the value of tapping into this labor pool? Yeah, my approach really has been like all you can ask from the, the business community is that they're open, right? That they remove sort of these blanket hiring policies and, you know, really offer opportunity to all people uh, and really look for the best talent. Mm-hmm. And my approach has been to, to having conversations with them around the fact that within this population of returning citizens, as we call them, there's immense talent. This, mm-hmm. a, this is an untapped 
resource that could literally benefit your productivity and your your company, and you know, immediately and in the long run. Mm-hmm. And you 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 will be doing yourself a disservice to not you know allow people from that pool of talent to apply for jobs or that that they cannot be hired at your particular company. And so, based on that, uh, I've been able to you know even if it's just hey start with one give me one shot let me send one person right and then that person is able to forge a pathway for many returning citizens behind them um this population is 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 loyal this population is eager um to prove themselves they have talent i mean some you know i mean i'm talking about such brilliance and it's just uh, they have not had the opportunity of pre-incarceration and post-incarceration to 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 have the benefit of having access to certain opportunities and you know I think for all the employees that I work with over my, uh, you know, at this point, 16 year career in reentry, mm-hmm. um, I very seldom have had experience where people say, well, I can't deal with you anymore. You know, unfortunately, if you have a, a return citizen that, um, you know, maybe makes a bad decision or does not work out, sometimes that can have a negative impact because people say, oh, that's all of them. And when you have hundreds or thousands of them that do amazing, they that's never the standard, which is sort of. Uh, you know, unfortunate for me, but at the same time, we've had great success. And again, um, the business community, I think, just really has a responsibility uh, to really give everybody an opportunity. You know, don't judge people on their past trans uh, transgressions if they have the skill set, um, in 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 the attitude aptitude, desire, all the things that you look for uh, in any employee, then I think you should give them the opportunity. Because every day we see people that have no criminal history that, that get fired from jobs. Right. <laughs> right. Every day we see people that, that don't have a criminal history that uh, misbehave on a job or steal from a job or steal time from a job. All of these things that I feel like are unfairly attached to returning citizens, uh, where because the returning citizens that I know that get jobs, that I've gotten jobs, they keep those jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I think we really have to sort of reimagine how we how we look at this population at, at, at the foundation for me. Uh, I, I really believe that people don't necessarily see the value in this population, right? When they look at this population, all they can see is risk. These people have paid their debt to society. They're, they're in my my opinion, particularly when their crime has no rational relationship to the job that they're doing. Right. right. If we're not saying, you know, hire the bank robber to work at Wells Fargo. Right, right. So if it's not that sort of like one-to-one thing, I think I people have to really explain to me why can't a guy with a drug offense do maintenance in your building, right? Like some of this stuff, it just makes no sense. And we've, we've, we've taken uh, this approach to just block everybody out. Um, and, and again, for the business community, it's hurting you. You're mm-hmm. missing out on, on, especially in this world, especially with young people, millennials who stay somewhere for like six months and then go on to the next job. This population will be uh, loyal to you uh, and they can help you thrive. So yeah, that would be my take on that question. Yeah, I want to follow up on a point that you made about risk and how employers are reluctant to take that risk. So tell me how you convince an, a prospective employer to see it as an opportunity rather than a risk. Yeah, we, we talk about all of the different interventions and our assessments and our process at CSOSA uh, that we take people through prior to referring them to uh, you know, an employer. And, and we, we, we can share, we know more about 
our people than somebody that's just like applying online. So I really try to build a relationship with employees to let them know that we can be a talent resource and you can feel safe with us. And on top of that, people are still on supervision, right? So our community supervision officers in layman's term, other places they call them parole officers mm-hmm. or uh, what have we call them community supervision officers. They are in constant contact. Uh, our individuals are, we do know that people are um, not, you know, using uh, illegal substances. We, we know people are compliant. So, you know, we're a federal government uh, agency. And so we take we take a lot of steps prior to referring people to employees. So we want our business, uh, people, our partners in the business community to feel safe with us. And I think that's that's sort of how uh, we've turned the corner. In a lot of ways, we even save, save employers money. You know, there's a lot of things they don't have to do because whether it's drug testing, whether it's background check, you know, a, a lot of times we referring people is sort of like a, we try to fashion ourselves and you can really check the box. These folks are credible and compliant and motivated in everything that we say that they are. And mm-hmm. in the event that you have, you know, uh, any issue we're, we're there, but I, I don't necessarily lead with that piece because we're, we're, we've taken steps to not refer people that, that we feel will give you any issues. We, we're referring people that's ready to work, increase yeah. your productivity and help you out and, and, and really, you know, stabilize their own lives. And, you know, also, I think what people have to understand, you know, a lot of people, some people have been, you know, uh, that we supervise also, um, I think almost 65% of them have not even been to prison. Mm. They, pro, they are probationers. So they have had a brush with the law, but they have not even been in prison. They're on right. probation, so they haven't even left the community. So it's just trying to sort of demystify some of the myths also that people hold. But even for our individuals that's been gone 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, letting employers know that people really want a fresh start. They want to be in the, you know, with their families. They want to be in the community. They've paid the debt, their debt to society. And it's in all of our interest to give these individuals an opportunity. Right, right. It sounds like you've really taken the time to figure out what works in engaging and activating the employer community, which is pretty awesome. Um, I've got one final question for you. Um, What are your kind of take home messages for job seekers, employers, practitioners, those who like you and those others at CISOSA who are trying to improve employment outcomes for individuals with a criminal record? Well, the first thing was is, is sort of what I alluded to before, like all of the promise and immense talent that that this population represents, uh, that that is a benefit for companies and is a benefit for the community. If this population can be positively engaged, uh, I feel like they have so much to offer all of us, uh, and, and people should not continue to be marred or marginalized by things that they've done in the past things that they've been accountable for, um, that public safety is important, uh, and that that's only going to come from everybody having the opportunity to be included, right? And and that, you know, we, we're taking every step possible to prepare men and women uh, from, you know, sort of our general assessments, from the amazing work that's done by our community supervision officers, but also through uh, our ability to partner and refer people to additional skill set enhancement and trainings that's getting people exactly what employers are looking for mm-hmm. here in the district of columbia we've also been able to partner with the uh, dc department of employment services to uh you know embark on this transition employment piece where basically you can test drive an employer employee right you can you can almost for six months 
the city will cover their uh, pay a subsidized wage. Mm-hmm. So not only can that person increase their skill set, but you as the employer can train and you can see what this person, who this person is currently. Not what this person has done in the past, but what this, who this person is currently, and you can actually help this person develop into exactly what and who or she, who he or she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's a win-win when we do that, right? We the, your your business increases productivity. Uh, you have a, a deeper stake in the community. You're looked at more favorably by the community. And the most important thing is these people get a chance to live and thrive and, and, and raise their children and impact their immediate families and communities in a positive way. Um, and I just only hope people can see it that way and not let, you know, the, what could potentially go wrong get in the way of what could potentially go right. Right, right. I like the way that you characterize that as, as a win-win for everybody. Um, so uh, all of this has been very informative, really helpful to understand from your perspective as someone who's on the ground working directly with um, the returning citizens, with uh, community organizations, with employers. It, it's great to hear your view on um, kind of what works in that space. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. My next guest is Andrew Morton, who is the Director of Certification Affairs at the Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. Andrew provides strategic leadership and direction for several of SHRM's inclusion initiatives, which include um, programs that focus on veterans, on military families, individuals with disabilities, as well as retention and engagement programs that include SHRM's Getting Talent Back to Work initiative, which we'll talk about momentarily. It's a pleasure to have you with me today, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's a really great opportunity to talk about an important component of our workforce. Before we get into the discussion, Andrew, can you start by telling the audience a little bit more about SHRM? Well, sure. And, you know, SHRM is the professional society for human resource professionals, and we have over 320,000 members across 600 chapters across the United States. But beyond being the professional society for human resource personnel within organizations, I think SHRM is really a leading advocate for better workplaces. And what I mean by that is we not only see ourselves as a professional society for HR, we see ourselves as the subject matter expert when it comes to best workplace practices, whether that's in hiring personnel, keeping them engaged, retain culture of an organization, uh, many of the different policies and legislative initiatives that support our workforce, whether it's related to, in this particular case now, you know, COVID-19, getting the workforce back to work. And organizations look to SHRM to help them determine what their strategy is going to be. And today, you know, specifically, really, it's about inclusion initiatives. You know, diversity is a recruiting goal. Inclusion is a business imperative. And Mm -hmm. you can't have inclusion without specific best practices in your organization. And when I say inclusion, you know, there's, I think, nearly 18 different categories of inclusion relative to the demographics, cultural background, ethnic background, and or circumstances of your employees. And second chance uh, employment, returning citizens is certainly a big part of it. Right, right. Thank you for um, outlining kind of the the bigger picture um, initiative Mm -hmm. and objective of the organization. 
Um, during the symposium, we talked a lot about barriers individuals with a criminal record face when trying to get a job. And you specifically talked about the importance of breaking down cultural and institutional barriers. What right. are some examples of these barriers and how can organizations like SHRM seek to address these challenges? Yeah, so, you know, one of the barriers that we found through the combined research that we We've done it, Chairman. Sherman does research across all different parts of the workforce and things related to the workforce. We found that many uh, what we would call people managers or many managers in the workplace were open and receptive to hiring people with criminal backgrounds. Um, 82% of them, as a matter of fact, if they were the best candidate for the job. Uh, mm -hmm. Three quarters of hiring managers. Uh, but the challenge that we found really was that HR professionals themselves were skeptical. HR professionals were the barrier. And in many cases, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't born out of any ill will or, or anything re related to anything personal about returning citizens. It was um, concerns with the legalities and ultimately the things that they may have within their purview where they have to protect the organization. Mm -hmm. So uh, many of the barriers we had to break down weren't uh, related to anything else other than breaking down perceptions and stereotypes about uh, what risk the organization may be at if they embark on an inclusion initiative like hiring returning citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's about education. So the whole Getting Talent Back to Work initiative was born around educating HR professionals to responsibly, in, a, in, a, in an educated way, consider second chance employees within multiple careers across multiple industries and be mindful of the fact that in many cases they're on par if not performance wise they exceed the employee base in 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 general mm -hmm. so that was that was you know it's it's a cultural and perception barrier now in our motto and we talked about this you know, before in both the symposium and when you and I talked a couple of days ago, it's not about lowering um, bars, lowering standards. It's about moving barriers out of the way, artificial barriers. And it's really, there's multiple phases of the employment process. There's really five phases of the employment process. And, and the employment process itself, you know, for second chance employees as a part of an inclusion initiative is no different than other inclusive groups, mm -hmm. whether it's um, individuals with disabilities, whether it's uh, based upon uh, someone's ethnic or racial background, uh, or whether or not it is veterans, for example. You know, these five steps are, are, are germane to a successful organization's inclusive hiring practice, and that is, you know, workplace readiness, talent acquisition, onboarding, talent development, and then ultimately talent mobility. And in each of those phases, trying to help organizations and HR professionals um, address the unique nature of hiring people with um, returning citizens, but also to remind them that what you're really doing is you're hiring the best candidate and mm -hmm. you're putting them in a position to affect your, your organization's bottom line. Right, right. Can you w walk us through a, kind of what the training looks like? You talked about the five components, but what does the training look yeah. like for an employer? Sure. So, you know, like, like many of the other resources that we have at SHRM for our members and anyone else in a position 
to affect the workplace. Uh, what we want to do is we want to make sure it's based on on evidence and, and, and research and best practices. So the digital toolkit that we want individuals to go through, those who can affect um, second chance employment hiring initiatives, uh, really takes them through uh, the different processes and phases and stages of putting together a workforce um, readiness program to prepare them to hire people uh, with uh, uh, backgrounds, ultimately, you know, returning citizens. So in the, the resources that are tied to each particular phase uh, are the training that individuals go through. The Most of the training is delivered online. It's not synchronous training where they have to, to, to sign in. But what they do is when they, when they sign the pledge, and the pledge it doesn't bind their organization to hire a specific number of individuals with criminal backgrounds or, or second chance uh, employees. What it does is it, it's a commitment to educate yourself and to complete the, uh, the getting talent back to work uh, digital suite of resources and tools. So employers and HR managers will go through and better understand. So for example, in terms of workforce readiness and workplace readiness, that particular module will help them understand what resources are out there that are in place across communities to give um, those who are leaving uh, the prison system and coming and returning back into the workforce. It, it talks to them about building the business case and demonstrating the skills that they can bring. But also because many HR people are compliance focused, it also talks about the risk mitigation. Um, so what you can put into place as an organization to make sure that you are still mindful and uh, ultimately understanding how to effectively use um, whether it's background checks or other uh, parts of your hiring practice in a way that's meaningful and inclusive, not in a way that uh, would preclude people from being hired just because of some cultural percep perception. So each phase of the Getting Talent Back to Work program gives them tangible resources and tools and validation in some cases that they're going about things in a manner that's both inclusive and responsible. You've talked about the making the business case and the business imperative. Yeah. Expand on that a bit. Sure. You know, I, I'm a veteran and I departed from the military in 2012, uh, like about 250,000 veterans do each year. And, uh, you know, many people started to build these veteran-friendly concepts of um, hiring. So we're going to hire veterans because of what they did in uniform. And, and, and while that isn't certainly something that's lost on me and while I'm appreciative of it, most hiring practices, whether they're inclusive hiring practices of veterans or returning citizens, need to be born of good business. They mm -hmm. need to support the bottom line of the company for them to be sustainable. COVID-19 is an absolute, um, uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy along many fronts. And one of them is the economic front. And what we're seeing is, we're seeing some of these altruistic hiring um, initiatives, the ones to hire veterans because they're veterans or the ones to hire um, whomever because they're whatever. Mm -hmm. We see those as the first people to go. We see them indexing much higher in unemployment because mm -hmm. they weren't hired effectively or for the right reasons. And so... What we're really talking about is the bottom line is this. We know statistically and based upon organizations that have hired 
returning citizens, we know that they're on par, if not outpacing um, employees in general. We know that they are retaining at a higher level for a multitude of different reasons. So these are the things that we have to lead organizations with. You know, it's great that you're a part of a three a three tiered process where one, or you know, you're you're giving somebody a second chance, and two, you're building a stronger community. But the very first step is you're hiring the best candidate. So let's talk about uh, how how this uh, pledge has unfolded. How many? Mm-hmm. employers or companies have signed on to the pledge? What's been their experience? Can you share some examples? Sure, I can. Uh, You know, we, so first of all, we partnered with some people who were really on the leading edge of developing effective programs for hiring returning citizens, such as uh, Dave's Killer Bread and Dave's Killer Bread Foundation. Jean-Vierre Martin, who is their executive director, was really uh, a leading a leading component of Sherm putting together the Getting Talent Back to Work program. So mm-hmm. Dave's Killer Bread, for example, has, has really led by example and and in hiring people uh, with uh, you know maybe a criminal background, regardless of whether or not they were they were in, incarcerated, uh, and 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 understanding that they were going to do it by example. Um, we we've got great examples within the Getting Talent Back to Work uh, website. Uh, you know, talking about the case for hiring uh, returning citizens. There's a great Q and A in there with the American Working Forward with uh, uh, David Retray, who's the executive VP of the Center for Education and Excellence, and he talks about um, the reasons why individuals with uh, criminal backgrounds coming back as second um, second chance employers are really given an opportunity to demonstrate what they can really do. We've seen organizations like Johns Hopkins um, as a part of uh, the healthcare space uh, lead the way in hiring people uh, who are second chance and returning citizens. And you know what? They've had their indexing at a fraction of the challenges they're facing with employees in general. Um, organizations big and small, uh, we've had thousands of organizations sign on to the pledge. And what we're finding is the more that they educate themselves, regardless of industry, on the best practices, uh, the more uh, successful that they are in putting together a broader initiative. And it, it, it's beneficial, again, not just to the organization, but to the communities in which they work. Wow, it sounds like the employers have really benefited from the Getting Talent Back to Work program. That's great to hear. Do you have any take-home messages, anything that you would like to share with employers or job seekers or policymakers in this space? Yeah, in terms of policymakers, what I would share legislatively is that we just really need to continue to take a hard look at barriers to inclusivity, Um, whether it's uh, the second-chance employees who are coming um, from our reform system back into the workforce. We need to take a look at what are necessary preconditions for specific uh, occupations? Uh, you, you know, SHRM is, 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 is not going to be the one to change these laws. All we can do is recommend that some of these artificial barriers be reconsidered and removed because what we found is uh, second chance uh, in citizens who are get, coming back and returning to the workforce, what we found is that if given the opportunity, they thrive. So mm-hmm. we want to look legislatively at some of the re- requirements across across states and across the country. Uh, 
from an employer's perspective, what I would tell them is be educated and understand how to effectively and responsibly hire any person, regardless of what affinity group they're in. Uh, so uh, one small example, we're not saying that you shouldn't use background checks in your, or, or background screenings in your employment process. What we're saying is they shouldn't be front-loaded in a way that's discriminatory mm -hmm. or they shouldn't be used in an overzealous way. Um, or you should ultimately allow the individual to come in and lend context to uh, their background if indeed they do have a criminal background. Uh, vet it against what they'll be doing every single day and make a determination based upon facts and research versus some sort of preconceived stereotype. And what we've also found too, by the way, is many of the organizations, particularly public-facing organizations inside of the uh, restaurants, for example, or or, or other hospitality organizations, what we found is when clients find out, when customers find out that organizations have committed to hiring returning citizens, they mm -hmm. actually embrace that organization even more. So this preconceived notion that if, I, if one of my waiters and is um, a returning citizen and uh, an individual finds out about that, then they're going to they're gonna look down upon my brand. That is absolutely the antithesis of the case that's happening. That's not true. They will actually embrace your brand more. That statistically is a fact, and that's what some of the small organizations and big organizations are telling us through the research. So what I wouldn't tell employers is don't make preconceived notions about it. You're hiring the best candidate for the job. There are workforce readiness programs that are getting second chance citizens the opportunity to come back into the workforce even before they start within your organization. And then when you give them the chance, remember this, that it's an entire employee life cycle. There may be some unique needs and support that they may need, but that's no different than a veteran. That's no different than someone with a, with a disability in the workforce, seen or unseen. So look at the totality of the situation and understand that the business case tells you that we've got an amazing pool of incredibly talented individuals that can help your bottom line, but we can also make our communities better. Yeah, well said. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And thank you all for everything you do, and, and, and let's get everybody back to work. I completely agree. Thank you. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. To learn more about RAND's research on jobs and criminal records, visit www.rand.org slash criminal records.